1: Glad to have all of you with us as we start another week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You know the three-volume uh, uh, books uh, uh, under the title "March," which told the story of John Lewis's early life and took him through the uh, famous March, uh, Selma to Montgomery. When if when they when those books first came out, especially the first of the three came out, some people who thought, well, this is interesting, a book about John Lewis's wife, a life told in graphic novel form, comic book uh, form. But the books quickly became a sensation. Um, the three volumes became national bestsellers. Uh, they won the National Book Award. And, and there was a very poignant moment at the National Book Award ceremony, I think it was 2016, in which John Lewis got up and c- and, and got very teary-eyed as he reminded people of a story he told a number of times before, that in 1956, when he was 16 years old, uh, he couldn't get a library card in his hometown because they were told, he and his brothers uh, and sisters were told, that the library was for whites only and not for coloreds. And so he said, to come here, receive this award, this honor, is too much. We lost John Lewis now more than a year ago. Uh, The three volumes of March uh, are now uh, available to everybody and kind of now part of history. But there's a brand new volume, Uh, co-written, once again, by Andrew Iden, an aide to John Lewis in his congressional office, and really the uh, person who came up with this notion that maybe it was okay to tell John Lewis's uh, story through comic books. And we'll talk about how that happened as we talk to him today. But we're now getting the fourth book in this series, uh, and it's the beginning of another three-volume set uh, called Run. We're going to talk about all that and more today with Andrew Iden. Uh, Jim Galloway, of course, is with us. He joins me on Mondays. And Jim, I'm very glad to have you here today. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This is just such a terrific way to start the week, don't you think? I agree. I agree. And having in, in, introduced you, Mr. Galloway, I want to introduce our guest today, Andrew Iden. Andrew, thank you so much for being here as we talk about RUN today. Um, Andrew, tell us about th- what it was that inspired you as a staff member for John Lewis to think that maybe his story ought to be told in a comic book form. A comic book had a big influence on John Lewis many years ago, right?
2: Right. Um You know, it was the summer of 2008. I had had just gotten promoted from the mailroom in the Washington, D.C. office to come down and work on the congressman's reelection campaign as his press secretary. And, um, you know, it was kind of coming down to the end of the campaign, and folks were talking about what they were going to do afterwards. And uh, I said I was going to Dragon Con, and and everybody laughed at me. And the congressman kind of piped up from the back, and he said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement, and it was deeply influential. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story, this, this, this amazing comic uh, that had been published in 1957, edited by Dr. King himself, something that we'd really never, never known. And um, I remember going home that night and looking it up on the Internet and just being amazed at how beautiful it was. It was 16 pages cover to cover. It introduced Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and nonviolence and the history of the Montgomery bus boycotts. And I remember sitting there on the couch looking at this and thinking about this question that had been uh, dominating that campaign, right? Because this is the campaign that came about where you had Abel Mabel and Markel Hutchins running against John Lewis after he had endorsed uh, Secretary Clinton and then switched his endorsement to President Obama. And there was a lot, I mean, he he John Lewis hurt from the pushback from that campaign and, and what it what it said, because the questions that really hurt him was what have you really done for us? I mean, you got beaten in Selma, but what else? And it became a question for us of how do we tell the rest of his story, all that he did to explain the connections between the March on Washington and the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins before Selma. And so I went back to work the next day and uh, I I thought, you know, well, the way to do that was to write a comic book. And I suggested it again and folks laughed at me again And then it took a little convincing, but eventually John Lewis said, "Okay, let's do it, but only if you write it with me. Um, And I think I think his wife Lillian had a lot to do with that decision because she was a librarian and she loved books. And I think he talked it over with her. And really, uh, I think for everyone who knew Lillian, you knew that she was uh, she was kind of the the muscle in the family. And um, I think she she had a lot to do with that.
0: Um, yeah, if, uh, you, uh, if if I could go jump ahead, in here, me. yeah, yeah, the the, the March trilogy, uh, number one is 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 just you can I can't say enough good things about it. You can find it now. the the the, the this librarian the library story is is, is quite telling because you can find this trilogy in in just about every school system in 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 Georgia. Probably, in, I'm sure in 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 many in Alabama. Uh, but what I what I like about it, well, first of all, th- th- am I right? The, the The March trilogy ends with the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five, right? And that's and, correct, and, yes, sir. And and the and and, and the Run trilogy is is it's kind of the first this first part. It begins the the story of of John Lewis's political career, if you will, uh, ending ending sure. with his, his election to to, con- to Congress or or
2: or going beyond, right. That's the idea. I think right now, this first book it picks up two days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act, um, and it's a story of John Lewis essentially losing everything. Um, the the pushback against Julian from when he gets seated when they attempt to seat him in the General Assembly uh, from his election in November of '65. Um, it's the story of the murder of Jonathan Daniels and Sammy Young and these cre- these, these these participants in the movement who's. Uh, murder has been in some ways overlooked. We think about James Reeb and we think about Viola Luzzo, but we forget about the people who continued the struggle after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. And in this particular volume, I think it's very, it's incredibly relevant for today because we have to understand um, what it is we're up against and where these forces began. And, you know, that's like, like just the context of Watts. I mean, we forget about the Watts riots taking place just days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. We see them as if they're from two different eras and yet they're inextricably connected. And I think for for this this whole series, you know, we've got to decide what what we're going to do. John Lewis and I finished two manuscripts uh before he we passed. We've published here now one of them, but the idea was that this whole series was about the relationship between Julian Bond and John Lewis. And these two men who were incredibly close friends who then came apart ultimately in the 86 campaign, but who influenced each other's lives almost every step of the way.
1: Um, So let's take kind of a chronological look at how you tell the story of Run in this first volume of the new three-volume set. But if you don't mind, Andrew, I want to go back a little further in time. I want to go back to 20. I guess it was 2015, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, when uh, you and John made your first appearance at Comic-Con after the first volume of March was released. There is an extraordinary photograph that uh, got tweeted all over the world after John died, sadly. It shows him walking hand-in-hand in in the Comic-Con convention hall With fourth grade students. And if you don't mind, I want to just read you a little bit of the New York Times story about that. It it was Sandra Garcia had the byline for the story and she wrote, Representative John Lewis was looking for an orange to carry in his bag. He wanted to pack two books, a toothbrush, toothpaste, an apple, and an orange inside his backpack just like he did in 1965 when he led a vanguard of close to 600 people across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He'd already acquired a jacket and backpack that were similar to the ones he'd worn half a century earlier on the march from Selma to Montgomery, even though he spent months looking through thrift stores to find them. And you're quoted as saying he went full (laughs) recreation— (laughs) <laughs> and, and the photos of him the photos of him with these children are just absolutely breathtaking. Um, and you were quoted again by The Times article as saying he was trying to show them, the children, how his faith and his belief in America fundamentally put him in a position where they would look at him as a hero, even though he is not a superhero. That must have been a remarkable day, and the photograph is just so
2: moving. That day, uh, so this was our third or second time at Comic Con. He'd first gone in 2013, and we'd had this. Uh, uh, I mean, it, 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 talk about being worried you're going to lose your job. Try being the staffer who takes John Lewis to Comic Con, and you don't know how it's going to go. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, all the all the press descended on us, and like the the panel turned out to like the room was standing room only, and we were sort of taken aback at the response that we were getting it. At Comic Con, and so then the next year, the congressman he who 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 had gone around and kept asking, you know, like who who is that? And I'm like, sir, that's a, that's a Wolverine. And then you know, like who's that? <laughs> oh, sir, that's a Hulk. You know, and he, he desperately wanted to fit in, right? He wanted to, to to be a part of this. He Felt like it was like, okay, this is this world that's accepting me. So he was like, well, I want to dress up the next time I go. And so we spent months trying to find the right backpack, the right trench coat, um, and, and so that he had his cosplay. He wanted to be so authentic, so he put those two books, there's March Book 1 and March Book 2, in his, in his backpack. And I remember being in his hotel room with Nate, uh, getting him dressed, because the backpack was actually kind of tough to get on. And so we, we get it on, and we're, we're kind of looking at each other like, what are we about to do? you know and Nate's with us and so <laughs> just start we just walked down to the convention floor and it was it was interesting because people were were looking at him walk by and and you could start to see that that they knew who he was now and and he hadn't quite gotten to the room yet and he gets stopped by some of the kids and they just mob him and he's dressed up and he's just like them but he's dressed up as himself and, you know, the way that came about actually, is that some students who were reading March in their classroom had asked if they could meet with the Congressman after the panel. And he had to get down to the floor for the signing. We knew he'd get mobbed after the panel. So he said, well, why don't you march with us? And it became about the idea of dramatizing this conflict of what he was trying to do. He was trying to teach the next generation how to march. And so he was gonna make it as plain and as real as he possibly could. And so after the panel was over, Um, it was, you know, our panels were always emotional. It was like a revival, right? Everybody got up and preached at the microphone. Um, and then it broke. And so we all got together, we lined up and this first year, the press didn't know what we were about to do. So the president was there covering it. we're sort of like shocked to see this line start to form of fourth and fifth grade students holding hands with John Lewis. and, And I'm over on the side and I'm sort of wrangling the press as well, sort of being like, back up, back up, back up. And then we just set off. And I think the thing that shocked us the most was how many people joined in behind us, because it ended up being thousands of people who joined the march and came down to the floor with us to the point where the fire marshal started freaking out a little bit and was like, you know, trying to calm everybody down to manage the line. Um, And I think you know, We didn't understand how long that moment would reverberate in history at the time. John Lewis was just having fun and doing what he loved to do best. And I think being with the kids, having their energy around him, gave him this sense of hope and optimism for the future that kind of recharged him before he had to go back to Congress. And I think it also put in people's minds that it is possible to use the tools and tactics of the movement, even the visual imagery uh, to inspire action today, and and push the young people to do more, and I think then you see it, you know, eight nine months later, they have the gun control sit-in, and all of a sudden the mm-hmm. members of Congress are using these tactics. So I think yeah. it was a profound moment for them. Uh, it, um, Andrew,
0: uh, yeah, it, uh, let's spin a little bit off your off your off off this reenactment. Uh, uh, theme here. Uh, f- first of all, I, I just want to explain to listeners that yes, this is a graphic novel, but yet, but but also this is just incredibly heavily researched. Everything is footnoted, chapter by chapter, page by page, and the and the footnotes are extensive. They're they're neatly tucked in the back, so so you you, you know you're not being fed a, fed a line. But but I was really interested in in in. Uh, some of the observations that that you wrote about how how difficult it is to put together a historical graphic novel and the things that you have to take into consideration uh, that, you, that the writers and the artists in particular have to
2: take, take into consideration as you create this thing. That's a great point, Jim. Uh, this is a different beast. Um, when you think of a nonfiction book, you are translating simply into words, but when you're using a graphic novel to create a truly nonfiction work, meaning that every quote is accurate, it's not dramatized, every panel is researched for time period appropriate reference photos, um, you have to do sort of an extra dimension of work. And I think uh, I brought a little bit of my own OCD to it as a congressional staffer because I was uh, that was the level we were expected to have in the in the office, um, and for this you know it's it's a, it's a uh, it's confusing to scholars i remember after march came out we would get these uh, scholarly folks being being like well you know he read this book or that book but they didn't understand that you're having to recreate time in this extra dimension that you're having to show not just that they were there but how they were there and what they did while they were in the movement and in the moment because you know it, it, it it's like for example um, in the scene where Julian is getting—the uh, uh, vote is actually happening in the Georgia General Assembly to oust Julian for the first time, right? The blocking of where people were sitting in the Georgia General Assembly. I had to sneak into the, to the building to go and look up in the rafters and talk to the congressman. Where were you sitting like in relationship to the board where the vote was happening so that you know which way his eyes were looking? In, in in relation to the to the facility and where was Julian's seat in relation to you so where were you looking at or like the 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 cars or the shoes that you have to show and then at the same time you know there's scenes like uh the debate they had in Snick uh, about the opposition to the Vietnam War this took place right around Thanksgiving weekend uh, no, uh November 1965. And it's a, this long meeting where they have these drawn out debates because SNCC was famous for these debates. They, they would debate every mm-hmm. element of, of the issue. And how do you recreate that and make sure that everybody's position uh, is accurately reflected? And what we were able to do is to use the meeting minutes because SNCC was so good at keeping records. Mm-hmm. So Nate, Nate would call, Nate the artist uh, would call these uh, sort of Council of Elrond. Uh, scenes, right? It's like long talking dialogue scenes, but you have to have them, and so we were able to use the meeting minutes to show who took what position, how they framed it, and how that argument spilled out into each other, into each successive point. And I think that's you—you uh, you could you could put that on the page, you could show them the words, but when you create that as a dramatic scene, you get so much more of the emotion. And the drama, as the congressman would put it, and I think that's that's kind of what makes uh, these books so much more accessible to young people. And as the congressman would say, people not so young. So, um, there,
1: this is such a rich conversation, and we could go in eighteen different directions, obviously, on this. But Andrew, let's let's do a little chronology here. Um, so the the book opens on Sunday, August eighth, nineteen sixty five, Americus, Georgia. At a church in Americas that John Lewis and his and a group of demonstrators are going to try to integrate. And we see the scene unfold as parishioners in the church, congregants are, uh, are, are angry that Lewis and his folks are going to try to get into the church. They're, they're calling each other out, oh, my God, that's John Lewis, we've got to call the police. What was that church, and why did John Lewis decide that was a place? to uh, demonstrate and try to integrate?
2: So the church in America uh, was home to a number of prominent figures in the town. I think that's part of the reason why it was it was a, a target. I think one of the characters we show in there is actually the local judge. Um, and the, the importance of that scene is not just that they're trying to fight for integration, it's what you said, it's the chronology. This is August 8th, mm-hmm. 1965. The Civil Rights Act had been passed in 64 which is what supposedly desegregated all facilities. And yet here you had not just a business, but a church, a house of worship, refusing to accept one of God's children. And and this was about showing, and the reason you open the book that way and, and what it dramatizes is that even though John Lewis two days prior had accepted a pen from Lyndon Johnson for the signing of the Voting Rights Act, he was going down to America's Georgia to test the laws of the Civil Rights Act, which at that point was more than a year old. And the idea that we're we're faced with today is just because you have a law on the books, doesn't mean that that is a way uh, society acts, that the way people behave, and that they live up to the to the letter of that law. And integrating that in America's, so you know, America's has a long dark past and a relationship with the Klan. And then you see it in the next pages. Uh, Calvin Craig, the Grand Dragon of the Klan at the time, he comes out and leads the largest hooded march that you'd seen in South Georgia in decades. Um. In response to this this flare-up, the 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 passage of the Voting Rights Act spurred this unbelievable backlash among these these groups uh, opposed not just to voting rights but integration. Um, and and I think and these and are the the groups we're fighting today.
0: And and if I could interrupt here, is is just it started a a, a conversation in just about every Protestant church in in Georgia. Mm. Uh, 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 We were new to the south in in, in 65, but we were also members of a a small congregation in Red Oak, Georgia, just south of just south of College Park. And uh, I can remember there was a debate in the church over what would happen if if a black person tried to walk through the door and uh, it, uh, it it. It, it it resolved itself. Uh we were a small congregation, not much to look at and and not worth not not worth protesting over. Uh but uh you know by by, by I think and I think maybe by the 70s maybe we had one or two uh black members. But it was it, this was this was this was a conversation that was being had across the south and, and and just the 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 impact of John Lewis and and I think one of the King cousins uh was involved too. Just having them approach a church uh, was was just was just was just so startling in the South. Um, and, and Andrew Lewis was arrested along
1: with uh, other marchers. They went to, to jail in uh, Americas over this. Um, and uh, and just to make a point, when he's released from jail, it's th- in, you in a panel introduce us for the first time. To Julian Bond, after I was released from jail, John says in the comic, in America's, so I went back to SNCC. SNCC, by the way, for those who don't know, is a student nonviolent coordinating committee, which was a very important part of the civil rights movement in the '60s uh, or early to mid-60s. I went back to SNCC's headquarters in Atlanta, where Julian Bond put out a statement on my behalf. And, and it, it's close to that point where John Lewis says they were closest of friends, Andrew.
2: Yeah, Julian and John Lewis were, um, you know, two peas in a pod. I think you can't—I saw this relationship in many ways with him throughout the years where you can't be John Lewis without somebody else putting out the press releases, someone else shepherding his message. And uh, Julian was that person for SNCC. I think you can see it in the scholarship— If you look at what Julian uh, did while he was the communications director for SNCC, uh, you see these unbelievable publications like The Student Voice that are complicated and interesting, full of pictures and and great articles. And then as soon as he leaves, The Student Voice publication drops off. It goes from uh, once every other month to maybe twice a year, and it's not nearly as full of pictures, and Danny Lyons not giving photographs. Um, But that relationship, that friendship between John Lewis and Julian, I think, redefine the South, particularly Southern politics, because if you have uh, like Andy Young, is the whole reason he ran for Congress is because John Lewis wrote a letter to Julian, and Julian, uh, urging Julian to run for Congress in the fifth district. Julian says, no, I don't want to do it. Andy picks up the letter, and then that's how he goes and runs for the fifth district. So I don't think you can understand Southern politics without understanding the relationship between Julian Bond and John Lewis.
1: Okay, we've got to get to the first break of the show. I, I do want to pick up on the Julian Bond John Lewis relationship because, as you said near the beginning of the show, that's really kind of at the heart of what the first volume of Run is about, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute. And and also we should talk about how the movement began changing in the mid '60s, which is another important element in this first volume. Um, we'll be back with more on the new uh, book about John Lewis's life, Run After These Messages. Jim Galloway joins me today as we talk to our special guest, Andrew Iden, the uh, co-author with John Lewis of March, the three-volume comic book a memoir of John Lewis's uh, early life leading up to Selma. Uh, to Montgomery, and now the new book, Run, which begins a new three volume uh, trilogy about his life uh, after the Civil Rights Act uh, was passed. Um, Andrew, I want to before we go to the, to the uh, story about Julian and John in more detail, I want to talk about what I think is a really important series of panels in this book. You've introduced us to the fact that we've seen Americas and John Lewis being arrested for trying to integrate the church. It's juxtaposed against the riot, uh, the insurrection, whatever you want to call it, in Watts, which was uh, one of the first mo- very, very dramatic incidents of, of, of African-Americans in a major American city uh, rising up and uh, burning down uh, uh, businesses. It became a huge, huge story, of course. But, but, but here's the point I want to make and have you and uh, uh, talk about and then, Jim, get you involved. Um, you have a, you have a family sitting or, or uh, uh, on a sofa. Uh, there's a mother, a father, the mother is embracing her daughter, kind of holding her with her arm around the daughter and there's another it looks like another girl sitting in front of them cross-legged and they're all watching the TV, they're watching a news report about Watts. And here we and we hear, I guess this is John Lewis's voice saying, Images of a major American city in chaos stoked white fears about integration and public safety. Here's the important uh, part of that. The movement wasn't facing segregationist foes like Bull Connor or Jim Clark anymore. Integration was now the law of the land, but confronting systemic racism... An economic injustice meant asking white people one question, is America ready to share its abundance with people of color? John talks about that in relation to Watts. That might have been written yesterday about America today.
2: I think as we were working on this, it was hard not to see the parallels, but it gave us a sense of why telling this chapter is so important. Um, in some ways, I hope this is a roadmap for people to be able to have discussions about what's going on right now and also what they can do for their own lives. Um, This has been the fundamental question since the civil rights uh, movement ended. How do uh, poor uh, people of color find their slice of the American dream? You actually see uh, Malcolm X discussed this in Nairobi, Kenya in 1964, just a few months before he was assassinated, where he says, you know, I think the only way we can win is if we have a mass movement of poor people from around the world. You see Dr. King engaging in the poor people's campaign in 68. And that's when they shoot and kill him. I mean, this is, this is the third rail. It's like, they'll let you into the building, but they're not going to give you their money. And that's what, that's what we're facing today. And I think, you know, Malcolm X was right, I think John Lewis was right. This is going to take a multiracial coalition of the impoverished and of those who are sympathetic, of those people of conscience to address. And I think when you think about John Lewis's life, this was his fundamental goal. It was, uh, that's why he got on Ways and Means, right? He was trying to balance the tax code in favor of those who were, as he would say, left out and left behind. Um, I saw that firsthand. I helped with that. It, it, To me, you know, as somebody who grew up, my father was a Turkish Muslim immigrant. My mother raised me by herself. Mama would say we were 99 cent Whopper poor because the only time we got to go out to eat was when Whoppers were on sale for 99 cents. That's why I wanted to work for John Lewis because it was he was one of those people who was fighting for that. And I think that's what's so important about this book is dramatizing that to this generation to understand that they are part of a multi-generational struggle, that this Economic inequality is not new, and that the fight over whether or not people of color will have the same financial and economic opportunities is the fight of this generation. Yeah, w- one of the
0: most, um, I think, gripping part of this of this of this uh, installment here, Andrew, is is that debate within SNCC, uh, uh the SNCC conference that 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 cost John Lewis his uh, leadership, and that was, I mean. It, it was it was it was built around a struggle among African American. SNCC was a coalition of, of white and black students at that point, point. and there was a, 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 a the, the the debate that broke up and you, you recount uh, consists of, of 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 black participants arguing whether uh, a a multiracial democracy is actually possible and so you have that line of thinking about uh, about whether 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 uh self segregation may be the best best path which which is not uh, i mean that that's that's that that contradicts what john lewis was saying at the time what martin luther king was saying at the time and yet we are back we are back right there in that moment right now i mean the players are, are a little bit different but this last census that 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 just was published this month, is 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 a look at is a, or in August is a is a look is a look at 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 whether we will truly be able to have that multiracial
2: democracy in in years to come. I think you're right. I think in some ways that was why John Lewis was so insistent, and I never understood it at the time, and only through reflection have I really gotten it he was so insistent that i always join him on stage that i'd be up there with him when we were giving our talks and i think it, he wanted to have a symbol of what it looked like to have a multi generational multi-ethnic coalition up there i mean you you see it with his endorsement of john ossoff this is something that he has believed in his whole life i think he saw it as the struggle between uh the beloved community and black separatism and stokely was very much in favor of the black separatists i think you see his uh, uh, followers, but also like the people who have relations with him, his godchildren, things like that. They're still advocating for that black separatism today, and that just wasn't who John Lewis was. There was this huge difference, this huge divide. He was willing to give up everything in in SNCC to to keep, uh, I guess, as he would say, it, you know, to keep everyone together. Because, you know, I think for him. And, and I think for all of us right now, it's it's a question of divide and conquer versus all work together for the greater good. Um, and I think when we all work together, that's that's the best solution, anytime, always. Um, and and at the same time, though, I have to say, I understand why. I mean, if you were black in nineteen sixty six and you just spent the last five years, watching black bodies being beaten night after night, shot and killed on the television, just like you've seen, you're have seen, you seeing today. Like, how do you not get frustrated? How do you not say uh, wh- enough is enough? And, and how do you not push back on that? But I think that was what was so important to history about John Lewis's faith and his belief in the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence because it wasn't just a tool or a tactic. and I think this is what the real debate comes down to for him. Nonviolence was not just a tool or a tactic. It was a way of life, a way of living. And if we could all be a little bit more nonviolent, like John Lewis was, then I think that's how we get to the beloved community. Let, let,
1: let's talk about uh, a, an episode that your book covers in uh, detail, and, and that's uh, Julian Bond's election to the Georgia State House in 1964, five. Do I have the? I what? I can't remember the exact the year that he was elected. Five, sixty-five. All right. So so Julian's elected in sixty-five uh, to serve the hundred thirty-fourth district. I think was the district at the time, and uh and and there is an, an, a successful effort to deny him the seat and the and and at least the ostensible reason for denying him the seat is that the civil rights leaders like John Lewis like Martin Luther King for that matter had begun to speak out against the war in Vietnam and Julian Bond was put in a difficult position where he too had to make a statement saying that the Vietnam war was wrong There was controversy within the black community about that. That's not our fight, opposing the war in Vietnam. We have more uh, essential matters to deal with here. But that was at least what triggered the effort, the successful effort, to expel Julian Bond. Talk about that a little, if you would, Andrew.
2: Absolutely. Um, Julian was part of this first wave of uh, activists who got elected to uh, the Georgia General Assembly and other offices, which, you know, ties back into the titles of these books. First, you march, then you run. It's about activism turning into public service. And so Julian was in many ways a test case. And he never intended, I believe, to, to really be that outspoken initially about the opposition to the Vietnam War. He put out the statement as the, as the communications director for SNCC at the time, but it was not his statement. And then he gets asked this question offhandedly almost by a reporter, do you support SNCC's statement? And and he sort of responds, yeah, of course. You know, I I support my organization. I support our positions. I was a part of this conversation. And then all of a sudden it shines this incredible light on him as an individual, a light that he had never before been under. And and honestly kind of took him back, because he wasn't, he, he he was the behind the scenes guy. I can empathize this, right? He was putting out the press releases. He wasn't having to stand on stage and debate the racist himself. And so then Julian becomes this uh, national figure. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to me, we, we talk about this in the book, you see uh, a former Klansman who was also a Georgia United States senator who was also vehemently af- uh, opposed to war, and yet they put a statue of him on the Georgia state grounds. But when it was a black person who did this, all of a sudden, that's intolerable, right? And I think it's important to also understand in the debate over their opposition to Vietnam War, there were increasingly more and more black folks and poor folks being sent to fight because they weren't able to get the educational deferment, right? They couldn't afford to go to college. And then also, if they didn't go to college and they joined the movement, then they were likely to be drafted. So the Vietnam War was pulling people out of SNCC right and left. These were people who were working in Alabama and Georgia. And John Lewis would see them on the front lines. And then weeks and months later, these people would be dead in Vietnam. Um, And so when Julian put it out there and just said, I support SNCC's statement, all the the animosity and and anger that people had for SNCC and their opposition to this became focused on Julian, and that made him a national celebrity. You had Dr. King come out to to lead a march in his honor. Even Julian's father, who had been somewhat, uh, I wouldn't say appalled, but but hesitant and and not fully supportive of Julian's participation in the movement, comes out and is marching down the streets of Atlanta to the state capitol and support him. It it galvanized the movement around him and turned him into an iconic national figure. And I think it was a major turning point as well for the opposition uh, movement to the Vietnam War, because now you had a leader. Uh, Maybe it was a reluctant leader, but a leader nonetheless. Uh, uh, Andrew, Andrew, how how did
0: just uh, the the Bond-Lewis friendship how did that work? I mean, you had you had Julian Bond, who was erudite, uh, as you said. He was his, his father was the president of a university. Uh, he had the looks. Uh, uh, he was he was eloquent whenever he spoke, and then you had John Lewis, who grew up on a chicken farm in in Alabama, uh, was never the best speaker. Uh, there was a, there's a little bit there was always a, a little bit of a lisp to his to uh, when, when he when he spoke, uh, and. just that degree of sophistication was was missing. How did did the friendship actually work?
2: From what the congressman told me over the years, and and just from what I experienced seeing the two of them together um, as they reconciled years later, I think this was about two people who came up at a time uh, where they were both finding out who they really were. Um, and, And John Lewis had so much respect because of his fearlessness his willingness to be beaten, to stand on the front lines. Julian was in considerably uh, fewer uh, protests. He was organizing. He was on the campus. He went to uh, Morehouse. He went to the college that John Lewis couldn't afford to go to. Um, And I think in some ways their, their friendship worked because they were opposites. They understood two different worlds, and so it was like they brought two different sides of the coin to the table with each other. And I think at the same time, they just liked each other. You know, sometimes you just meet people and you like to be around them. I don't know if it's chemistry. I I don't know if it's uh, whether you believe in astrology. I don't know. But they liked each other and they just enjoyed spending time with each other. And I think that's what uh, and I can understand that. Congressman used to say when we were touring for Run he would say, or when we were touring for March, he would say, it's like the old days when Julian and I were uh, touring for the Voter Education Project. And, and, and we just had so much fun on stage, joking with each other, being serious, having these revivals, but then every night going back and, and, and having just conversations, living life, going to, I don't know, Congressman used to love to go to Nordstrom's or, or Dillard's and we would go after these events and buy ties. You know, it's these these small things where you build up these like loving relationships and I think that's really what it was for John Lewis and Julian. And I think it really hurt both of them in a deep and profound way that they were apart. I mean, hearing Julian talk about it in 2014 and 2015, it was like he was he was he was reconnecting with this long lost part of himself. Like he missed John Lewis. And and I think they, you know, Julian actually said he believed the congressman became uh, did a better job as congressman than he would have. And um, I think really at the end of it, it just came down to people with ambition and and having that collide. Uh, and, and of course it would be the same ambition about these two people who loved each other. Okay.
1: So I really have to jump in because we're missing a a crucial moment of this story, which by the way, is not part of the first of the three volumes of run. We're going to get to that in, in probably, I assume the second volume. So here's the point that, um, and Andrew, you can jump in on this, uh, so uh, Lewis and, and Bond, very, very close friends. Weich Fowler had been the fifth district congressman in Georgia for, I think, 10 years. And it was finally in the last couple of years of his final term, it was understood that because of the demographic changes to the fifth district, it was time for an African-American to rep- represent that district. And so Fowler was kind of gracefully told, please do something beyond that. He ran for Senate. He won in 1986 for Senate. That left an open uh, House seat in that 86 election. Julian Bond was the favored son. Julian Bond was the inheritor of that seat. He was the privileged child of, uh, of, of well-to-do African-American parents, and John Lewis challenged him. And it started at what became an incredibly bitter campaign that, Jim, you and I covered pretty extensively. It was, it was really kind of awful... Andrew, to watch the unraveling of that friendship around that campaign.
2: First of all, that's why it's so cool for me to get to be on here with you guys, because I got to know John Lewis after all of this. I was sort of the son figure, not the peer. And and being a part of the, the of y'all who knew him then, I love hearing the stories from you as much as anybody. Um, I think when you look at the, the, look, the election of 86 was about John Lewis uh, making good on a promise and an idea that he had laid out 15 years prior. Uh, he was the one who identified the fifth district seat as the seat of black political power in the South. He's the one who pushed Julian to run for it then, and Julian said no. Um, and so, and John Lewis ran for it in 77 as well against Weishfowler and lost. And then that's when he goes and joins the city council. This is something that he had always wanted to do. Um, that campaign, the animosity of it, I think, really came from a sense of righteous indignation on Julian's part that John Lewis would dare challenge him. Uh, Julian, this is what people forget, Julian was the national figure. Julian had been on uh, Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. of all things. You know, he was <laughs> the, the former vice presidential nominee, but in elected office, he'd only moved from the state house to the state Senate. He really hadn't moved up that fast, but he was trying to be a national figure from a state office, which is really difficult to do. And I think John uh Lewis and 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 Lillian, Lillian was the master strategist of some parts of this. Um they had a different idea, you know, and 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 the campaign itself, John Lewis, he had this, he would say these things, he would be like, vote for a workhorse, not a show horse, or or vote yeah. for a a, a a tugboat, not a showboat, right? I mean, he went after him, right? And that's not even the uh the 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 questions about uh use of substances. Um, but yeah. the campaign itself separated Atlanta, too, because people forget John Lewis also took the white part of Atlanta and Julian lost that part of Atlanta. Uh,
1: I got to get to a break. Of course, John Lewis won and went on to an illustrious career in the U.S. House of Representatives, which is where our guest, Andrew Iden, first uh, started working with him many years later. We got to get to a final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Hey, Andrew, I, just a few minutes ago, I got an email from a very faithful listener to this show who's really angry at me because I've called uh, 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 March and now run, I've called them two things, but I call them comic books. Help me here, Andrew. There's nothing wrong. <laughs> right. You write comic books. You write for DC. I think you've written for Marvel. And because we're looking at each other on WebEx, you're wearing a Superman t-shirt today. <laughs> 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 Nothing. Is yeah, it a problem think, to call them comic books?
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, I think March and Run are what you would call graphic memoirs. I mean, the, the terminology of this yes. is something that really isn't settled. We're all just sort of making it up as go as we go along. And, and in some ways, graphic, these works have taken on a bigger life than the terminology was prepared for them to have. Uh, well, you know, I just I mean, want to like, say like i meant s-
1: no disrespect by calling them that. <laughs>
2: Bill, you're giving us airtime. You're helping us get the word out. That's the biggest thing we could ever ask for, because, you know, I, I remember when we first did this, the congressman goes on Colbert and they, and Colbert says, you know, is it dignified for a congressman to do a comic book? And then we talk about Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. He says, yes, but but we've been spent, We spent so much of our time trying to convince people that this is a legitimate form of literature. And so just being able to have this platform, being able to talk about it like, like it is literature and have that response is is everything to us. I, I, I,
1: I want to say as an answer to our listener whose emails I love getting most of the time, uh, I have great respect for that form of literature. I read graphic novels quite frequently and think they're wonderful. So my apologies if I uh, was some, somewhat uh, uh, dis, uh, denigrating in the way I talked about it. Uh, Jim. Uh, one of the things that Andrew does before we run out of time here is, and we don't want to give away <laughs> every moment of the book, but by the ending of the book, uh, we're left with John Lewis in some despair. Uh, SNCC has been taken away from him. Stokely Carmichael has uh, has muscled G- uh, 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 John out of the way over issues like we believe in black power, not nonviolent integra- methods of integration and that sort of thing, and um, and, and it's hard for us, I think, to look back, given what we know happened to John Lewis, and realize that he reached a moment of such deep crisis in his
0: life. Uh, yeah, and, and you have to remember that he was, he was only 26 at that time. I mean, I mean uh, not everybody has figured out where they're headed uh, by that age. And and uh, he had been kicked out of he had been kicked out of SNCC or he had uh, ultimately he resigned because they took some positions he couldn't he couldn't uh, 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 he couldn't agree with. And uh, I, I, I think, uh, Andrew, I think that your your phrase is that he got a he, uh, he got a job that pretty much put him on the shelf that let him know
2: that he was he was uh, he, he his time was done. Yeah, John Lewis moves to New York City. He goes and joins the Field Foundation. It's funny, a year after the book ends, uh, John Lewis is on the other side of it, giving Dr. King a grant for a new nonviolent action. Um, He's the administrator. He's the bureaucrat. Everything changed. And I think that was really hard for him because he's such— he's such a doer. He's such a, uh, in the moment, like needing to move. I mean, he would get bored in the congressional office and he start throwing little bags of jelly beans over our desk to get us up and out of our desk so that we could go do something. Right. He always wanted to be moving. And I think that was a, it was just, it was just difficult for him because he, uh, was a doer. I think that's the best way to put it. And you're right. He would felt like he was put on the shelf and it was very, very hard for him, but, When we think of john lewis today the most important thing to understand is that he perpetually reinvented himself whether it was at 26 years old reinventing himself as a public servant or at 70 years of age reinventing himself as a cosplaying congressman with his graphic novels to teach another generation about what he'd accomplished in his life and it's about perpetual reinvention and i think it's a model for all of us and that's why it's so important that we read run and read his story.
0: Let me ask you. Uh, you you said that you've got enough interviews and and work with 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 uh, uh, the late congressman to to do uh, one more one more uh segment of run. What happens after that? I mean, does does the does the story continue in his voice? Uh, and and how far do you take it?
2: You know, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question that I don't have a good answer for. To be frank, I mean, I think the question whether or not we even do the second volume is up in the air. It's up to the artistic team. Um, and we, I, I've taken the position that it needs to be what the congressman will call a Quaker consensus for whether or not we move forward. Uh, I've talked to John Miles, the congressman's son, um, and I've talked to the artists, and we're just relieved to have this out and have finished our work on this one because I think it turned out so beautifully. Um, and what we do next is is a question that remains to be answered. I think This story needs to be told, right? John Lewis in 67 and 68 is so important, uh, not just to young activists today, but to understanding the history of this country. Um, But am I the person to do it? And we had this old saying, like, should this be said? Should it be said right now? And should it be said by me? And I guess that's the questions I'm going through right now with that book as well. I didn't mean to
1: interrupt, but I guess I had a misunderstanding. I was under the impression that you were already working on yet another volume because you've left us with a cliffhanger at the end of the this first run book, Andrew. I don't I think somebody's gotta tell the next chapter of the story.
2: <laughs> well, we, we were working right up. I mean, until like weeks before he passed. Um, I was hide these things under his, his off or his house had a mail slot in the basement and I'd slip him through there and then he'd hide his notes behind the planter um, and so we did we finished a script for the second volume but finishing a script is like one stage in the process after that yeah. you have to go through and do a separate uh, uh, like review of the history then you have to go into pencils and then once you've got the pencils you lay down the lettering then you go into inks and then you do a whole you know it's this huge process making a nonfiction graphic memoir is more work than just about any other book I could think of and so whether or not we in, 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 begin that next process is still a question we have to answer
1: uh, Andrew Iden, we are completely out of time. Jim Galloway, you know I love having you with me on Wednesdays. Andrew, the book is Run, a graphic memoir of, that takes us through the life of John Lewis after the Civil Rights Act is passed, and that we hope will continue on. Andrew Iden, whether you're able to be part of it or not, we've really enjoyed having you on Political Rewind today. Thank you so much, and best of luck with this new book, Andrew. That's it for us. We're Thank completely you so much, out of time. Back tomorrow. Yeah, we'll talk politics on tomorrow's show, and uh, I hope you can join us. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask indoors. Please keep the virus from spreading. And if you really still know people who haven't taken a shot, figure out a way to talk to them politely about doing it. See you all tomorrow.